of Ittai the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will also go out with you. But the men said, you shall not go out, for if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city. The king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a oak, great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him went on. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man who told him, What? You saw him? Why then did you not strike him there in the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver in a belt. But the man said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing the king commanded you in Abishai and Ittai, for my sake protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor-bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Then Joab blew the trumpet, and the troops came back from pursuing Israel. And Joab restrained them. And they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a very great heap of stones. And all of Israel fled everyone to his home. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name, and it is called Absalom's monument to this day. Then Ahimez, the son of Zadok, said, Let me run and carry news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. And Joab said to him, you are not to carry news today. You may carry news another day, but today you shall carry no news, because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to the Cushite, Go tell the king what you have seen. The Cushite bowed before Joab and ran. Then Ahimez, the son of Zadok, said again to Joab, Come what may, let me run, also run after the Cushite. And Joab said, why will you run, my son, seeing that you will have no reward for the news? Come what may, he said, I will run. So he said to him, run. Then Ahimez ran by the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. Now David was sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went to the roof up of the gate by the wall. 
And when he lifted up his eyes and looked, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out and told the king. And the king said, If he is alone, there is news in his mouth. And he drew nearer and nearer. The watchman saw another man running. And the watchman called to the gate and said, See, another man running alone. The king said, He also brings news. The watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimez, the son of Zadok. And the king said, He is a good man and comes with good news. Then Ahimez cried out to the king, All is well. And he bowed before the king with his face to the earth and said, Blessed be the Lord your God, who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my lord the king. And the king said, Is it well with the young man Absalom? Hamaz answered, When Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion, but I do not know what it was. And the king said, Turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. And behold, the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good news from my lord the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, O my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. Father, These are hard words today, and they're filled with emotion, and we see David's heart breaking, and we're reminded of your heart, and your son. What a gift. It's only by him, it's only because of him, that we're here today, that these words have any meaning to us at all. So, Lord, do speak that we might hear by your Spirit. Open our our eyes and clog our ears. Hallowed be your name. Amen. When God first made covenant with Abraham, one of his eternal promises was, I will bless you. And make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And then when God made covenant with David, which we looked at back in 2 Samuel 7, God built that Davidic covenant upon the Abrahamic covenant. And God said to David, I will make for you a great name, like the names of the great ones of the earth. A great name. And Abraham did not strive for a great name, neither did David, and both were deeply flawed characters, David especially, as we have been seeing over the past few weeks. But we know their name today. Their names are great in our midst because of God, not because of what they've achieved for themselves, but because God made good on his promise. 
He made their names great. But what God offered through promise, what God gives through promise, Absalom thought he could take. He wanted to make for himself, build for himself a great name, and unwittingly, he was attempting to construct a great name for himself upon the ruins of Babel where they cried out, let us make a name for ourselves. Absalom says, let me make a name for myself in deep, corrupt, poisonous vanity. Yes, we saw it last week. Absalom was an incredibly vain man and he's filled with ambition and he despises his father. David. And so he stole the hearts of the people of Israel. And he stole the throne. And in the process, a family was broken, a kingdom threatened. And we see that vanity, we learn that vanity has a bad habit of chasing things that it cannot catch. Absalom couldn't see it, he didn't know it. He had no clue. But there was a far greater force working against him. Even as David mournfully withdrew from Jerusalem, as we read last week, he cast this net of espionage over the city. And one of his secret agents enters the city just as Absalom is entering, and Hushai pretends to do the same as Ahithophel did. Hushai pretends to give his loyalty to Absalom, but... He is David's plant. He is David's agent. Second Samuel 17, the chapter right before the one we're focusing on today, it's all about Hushai and how he defeated for David the council of Ahithophel. In so doing, Hushai saves David's life. He sets up Absalom for spectacular failure. But behind Hushai, Working against Ahithophel, working against Absalom, is the almighty, sovereign hand of God. As we read in 2 Samuel 17, 14, For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel, by Hushai's counsel, so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. And that last line is meant to ingrain itself in our minds as we read through the narrative of David that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. A great life that Absalom planned to build for himself, that he was taking for himself through rebellion, through vanity, through pride upon him did the Lord plan harm. Even while Absalom was mustering all the might of Israel's military, it was hardly enough for him to overcome this unseen power working against him. For as we read in 1 Peter, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And God's opposition was right. David had his severe failings, for sure, but he was still a man after God's own heart. And humility had pierced his heart, and humility was about to pierce his heart again. 
David was always going to win. Look at verse 1 again. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai and the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai, the Gittite. Chapter 17, previous chapter, we see there that Absalom appoints Amasa to lead Israel's army. Amasa is Joab's nephew. On the other side, David's army, he appoints three divisions. Joab will lead one of them. Joab, David's right-hand man, a well-seasoned military commander, he would lead the first division. Joab's brother, Abishai, one of David's mightiest men, he'll lead the second division. And Ittai the Gittite, who only recently pledged his loyalty to David, we saw it last week, he will lead the third division. Absalom's forces would be concentrated under a generic Joab. David and his men, they had the experience. They are well deployed in a three-prong attack, a time-tested strategy. Right from the start, this narrative is trumpeting at us, the reader, that David has the advantage. For when the sovereign will of God and the skill of man unite? Can there be any other outcome than victory? Oh, that the sovereign will of God and the skill of this church, the giftings of this church would unite. But in this narrative, we must wait for the climactic outcome, the the clashing of these armies, because David's got some ideas of his own. We see that starting halfway through verse 2. And the king said to the men, I myself will also go out with you. But the men said, You shall not go out, for if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city. The king said to them, Whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by the hundreds and by the thousands. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. You know, David wanted to ride out with his men. He Wanted to be in that position of, of power, of control, of command. But everyone in his camp understood that he was the prize. Absalom didn't care about the whole rest of the army. He just wanted David dead. And if David fell, all, all was lost. Absalom's claim on the throne would be legitimate. There wouldn't be any contest anymore. Absalom would be king. So David was worth 10,000 of Israel's sons. Stay in Jerusalem. Vanity here would have put up a fight. Can vanity release control? Position, power, command? No. It will not relax its grip. And so it is in humility 
that David says, whatever seems best to you, I will do. Forces you to ask, back in chapter 11 when David stayed in Jerusalem, did he stay for a similar reason? He may have stayed for a similar reason, but what happened with Bathsheba? Well, there stands David in the city, Manahayim. He stands by the side of the city gate, halfway in the city, halfway out of the city. It's like David is here caught between two worlds. Should I stay or should I go? He wants to go, but he has to stay. And it's this place of, from this place of an uncertainty, of being torn, of being held in tension, that he issues his only command to the armies. The only command. Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. Deal gently with Absalom. Not for his sake, for my sake. Because of me. He deserves vengeance. He's a rebel. But for me, would you treat him well? If you love me, would you love him by giving to him some measure of gentleness? And verse 5 says, all the people heard it. Everyone heard David's command. David is, he's like all of us. He's like all humans. A complex being with complex emotions, conflicting emotions. And a lot of the time, they don't make sense, but they come together whether we like it or not. He, all Israel, needs Absalom to be decisively defeated, David knows that justice must be exacted upon Absalom, his vain and rebellious son. And yet he can't stop being a father. And he loves his son, his precious son. And he can't help himself. Deal gently, for my sake, with Absalom. He's stuck between worlds. David stands by the gate. And the army marches off towards war, off towards his son, out of his control. He is a king. He has to stay, but he is a father, and his heart wants to protect his son, rebel though he is. And in this pregnant moment, as the climactic battle is about to break, three chapters have been building towards, two wills collide. David desires gentleness for Absalom, where God has planned harm. Verse 6. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over all the face of the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. 
For three chapters of building, this battle ends in three verses. It's like over before it starts, as far as the narrative is concerned. And Absalom's forces are decimated. The forest of Ephraim to the east of the Jordan River is said to have devoured more men than the sword. It reminds me a little bit of Lord of the Rings. The forest that devours the orcs at the Battle of Helm's Deep, a forest made of ants, fierce walking trees. And I wonder if Tolkien found inspiration in 2 Samuel 18. But the forest of Ephraim is filled with no magic creatures, only the brooding wrath of God. Perhaps David's divided forces could more easily outmaneuver Absalom's concentrated force in the thickness of the forest. Perhaps the more experienced troops used the terrain and the cover in the forest to mount repeated surprise attacks. We don't know, but it does seem that Absalom is caught by surprise. Verse 9, and Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branch of a great oak. And his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. The battle took three verses. Absalom's death will take nine Back in chapter 17, Hushai, David's secret agent, he had counseled Absalom to be front and center. Be up there leading your troops. And Hushai was crafty because he knew that Absalom was no warrior. He was not an experienced commander. But he knew that it would play on Absalom's vanity. So here's Absalom front and center and his forces are gone and he's all alone in a hungry forest and as verse 9 says Absalom happened to meet the servants of David happened to to Absalom it was a chance to David's servants it was a chance there was no chance here Again, the unseen hand of God drawing these parties together for his plan governs all. The machinations of man come from the hand of God. And Absalom's surprised. All of a sudden, David's men. And so he turns to flee on his mule. And off he goes galloping, mules gallop. And suddenly, his head is caught in a branch branch of a great oak. Now in chapter 14, it tells us that Absalom had long, lush hair, and our Sunday school lessons have taught us that his hair got tangled in the branches of the trees, but there's no, nothing says that in the text. Perhaps that's what happened, but perhaps a, a fork and a branch caught it in his neck and stuck him there, and he was able, unable to remove himself. Perhaps he's unconscious. By the way, he's caught, he's stuck, and off runs his mule, and he's left dangling, dangling between heaven and earth. Huh. He's caught between life and death. And it's ironic 
that here at the end, the Son and the Father are the same, caught between worlds, held in tension, and neither can stay there long. And a certain man saw it and told Joab. Joab said to the man who told him, What? You saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittite, for my sake, protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, there's nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. A certain man, a random, unnamed soldier, happens upon the suspended son of David. And like a good soldier, he immediately reports it to his commanding officer, Joab. Of course, it's Joab. It has to be Joab. Israel's bulldog, the hatchet man. During the last civil war, Joab didn't hesitate to murder. He killed Abner in cold blood. And he's a hard man. He had killed Uriah upon David's wicked request. And he's a hard man. He doesn't deal gently with anyone. For Joab, it's a black and white world, and Absalom is the enemy. And so, of course, the news comes to Joab. And he's incensed that this certain man didn't just immediately cut down Absalom and kill him. What? You saw him? You didn't kill him? I would have given you a reward? But the man knows better, this certain man. And his world, I think, is a little more nuanced than Joab's. He's a man of conviction. He's a man of principle because really with great courage, he confronts Joab and he reminds him of David's words. Deal gently with the young man Absalom. And all the money in the world wasn't enough to make this certain man betray the son of the king. Couldn't have been easy to speak like this to Israel's bulldog. Even if that man feared Joab, he knew David would find out. David had a way of knowing things. It's like the Spirit of God rested upon him. He sees it. He sees everything. He would find out the truth. And, and in that moment of questioning, if, this, if, he were to, if he were to deny killing, or if he would have killed Absalom and tried to weasel his way out of it, would Joab have backed him up? No way. Joab would have hung him out to dry. So what happens next, I think, is something we see all the time today. This certain man, this man of character, this courageous man, he has crafted a strong, well-reasoned argument and, it, and confronts it with Joab. And 
Joab is like, I don't have time for this. I've got no argument. Your argument's too strong for me. I've got no argument, so I don't have time with this. I'm walking away. We see this all the time in our society. People who know that they've lost the argument, just walk away. I don't want anything to do with you. That's how Joab responds to this courageous, unnamed man. And then comes verse 14. Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and he thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the yoke. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. While Absalom is hanging from the tree, Joab heartlessly thrusts three javelins into, Joab, into Absalom's heart, into the heart of the son of David. And then we haven't, we don't see it yet, though he doesn't realize it yet. He's aiming at Absalom, but really he strikes David right in the heart. I don't know why three javelins, but I do know that this is now the third son of David that is killed, that dies. The Hebrew here doesn't necessarily mean that Joab stabbed the organ of the heart, but it means that these javelins, it could mean that these javelins penetrated the core of David's torso, deep into his abdomen. Seems like the right understanding because he then falls to the ground, it would seem, and Joab's armor bearers, absent of all gentleness, savagely beat Absalom to death. Then Joab blew the trumpet, and the troops came back from pursuing Israel, for Joab restrained them. And they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a very great heap of stones. And all Israel fled, everyone, to his own home. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken, a set, taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name. He called it Absalom's monument. And it is called Absalom's monument to this day. Absalom is dead, and Joab is a hard man, but he is no fool, and he knows that it's not good for Israel if Israelites go on killing Israelites, so he blows the trumpet to end the fighting, to bring this civil war to a close. And then they take the cursed traitor, and they just throw his body into a pit. No ceremony, no honor, no gentleness. In life he was a curse, and in death they have regarded him as accursed. And they heap stones upon him in the same way that Joshua heaps stones upon the accursed king of that wicked city, Ai, that city that was devoted to destruction, cursed by God. Absalom, the son of the king now regarded as vile, detestable, a cursed enemy. He has been swallowed by the forest. A man who sought to build a name for himself. He built no tower to heaven, but instead he's reduced to two sad heaps of rocks. One in a forest, one in the king's valley, like two gravestones 
And when anyone, anybody walks by in Jerusalem, they look upon that pile that Absalom built, they would wag their heads and they would mock. Remember the cursed son of the king. The name he wanted so badly for himself, mocked, accursed, despised. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity, a striving after the wind. How appropriately, appropriately we can apply Solomon's words to his older brother, Absalom. And at this point, the narrative almost compels you. Now that Absalom is under that heap of stone, it compels you to look over at David and see how will he respond? What will happen with David? What will he do? How will he react? Though he has been vain and treacherous and murderous, you, you somehow feel sympathy for Absalom now. Not because of Absalom, but because of David. The storytelling is masterful here. And it masterfully delays us from getting that resolve. And instead, it, it pivots to these two messengers. Who cares about the messengers? But we get the messengers. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said... Let me run and carry the news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. Joab said to him, You are not to carry the news today. You may carry news another day, but today you shall carry no news because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to Cushite, Go tell the king what you have seen. But Cushite bowed before Joab and ran. And Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said to, again to Joab, Come what may, let me also run after the Cushite. And Joab said, Why will you run, my son, seeing that you will have no reward for the news? Come what may, he said, I will run. So he said to him, Run. Then Ahimaaz ran by the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. Now David was sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof of the gate by the wall, and when he lifted up his eyes and looked, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out and told the king, and the king said, If he is alone, there is news in his mouth. And he drew nearer and nearer. The watchman saw another man running, and the watchman called to the, called to the gate and said, See, another man is running alone. The king said, He also brings news. The watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, He is a good man and comes with good news. Then Ahimaaz cried out to the king, All is well, shalom. And he bowed before the king with his face to the earth and said, Blessed be the Lord your God who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my lord the king. And the king said, Is it well with the young man Absalom? Ahimaaz answered, When Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion, but I do not know what it was. And the king said, turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. Bizarre account. Joab remembers what happened to other messengers who brought news to David of a 
king who had been killed or a king's son who had been killed, and it didn't go well for those messengers. So maybe Joab fears this for Ahimaaz, for Ahimaaz comes from a prominent family. He's not so expendable. But here's this Cushite. (laughs) It's from like the region of modern-day Sudan. Nobody cares about him. He's a foreigner. Let's send him to go deliver the news. Yet Ahimaaz persists. He wears down Joab with the words, Come what may, let me also run. He says it twice. Like, Whatever happens, I'll deliver the news. I'll do it. He's excited. He's excited to, to bring the news to David. To let him know that the kingdom holds, that his throne's been restored. He's excited. Joab knows there's not going to be any reward in it for you. You might just find punishment. Come what may. Though the Cushite leaves first, Ahimaaz finds a faster way. And in verse 24, just as Ahimaaz is coming into view of Mahanaim, we finally return to David, and there he is again, between the gates. Held in tension, waiting, waiting, waiting. It's this heartbreaking scene. It rends your heart because he sees Ahimaaz coming. Ahimaaz is a good man. Ahimaaz will bring good news. I mean, his, his heart's swelling with hope here. But he's standing between the gates. You wonder if doubt swells with the hope. It'll be good news, right? Absalom's okay, right? Lord, let it be good news. David's hoping for justice and gentleness. He wants the rebellion to be put down. But for the love of his son, he wants Absalom's life to be spared. So Ahimaaz arrives and he just got to, goes right into it. He declares first, Shalom, which was the last word that David ever spoke to Absalom. Shalom. And then he joyfully and even worshipfully delivers this news that he's been so excited to proclaim. The throne restored. Justice wins. The kingdom holds. King. But David almost brushes it aside. He has one question. One question. Burning, aching question. He wants news of his son, so ignoring everything else, he asks, Is it well with the young man Absalom? When it comes to it, come what may, Ahamaz can't find the words. He knows Absalom is dead. Joab told him that directly in verse 20. And so he answers David strangely. It's almost incoherent what he says. He cannot speak the hard news. He can't get it out of his mouth. Delivering hard news is hard. Do we know what that's like? Telling people that they are enemies of God is hard news. 
telling people that they deserve death, hell, because of their rebellion against God is hard news. That sinners deserve wrath and that you are a sinner is hard news. But for the good news to be good, revealed in all of its glory and all of its awesome grace, the bad news must be delivered. We must speak it. We cannot fear speaking those words. Not just the pastor, but you and your seat in the community. And so when we come to it, that moment, do we stumble and mutter and fall into silence, afraid to say the hard news? If so, you'll be brushed aside. Almost irrelevant. The bad news is what makes the good news good. And the good news is our grace for the bad. Ahimaaz becomes utterly irrelevant because he fails to deliver the hard news that the king's son has died. And so he's brushed aside. David says, stand over there, basically. Stand over there, another messenger comes. I hope none of us are brushed aside for another messenger. Verse 31, behold, the Cushite came. And the Cushite said, good news for my lord the king. For the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? He's not going to be like that young man. He's unafraid, the Cushite. He's unafraid to deliver the tidings of war and the hard news for a king. Again, David, his only question, like the news of the war is secondary, it's peripheral. He wants to know about his son. Is it well with the young man Absalom? Cushite's no fool. So he doesn't use Absalom's name. He doesn't even say that he's dead. He answers, in a, I think, in an alarming, or in a, in a disarming way, with incredible wisdom. He indicates that Absalom was the enemy, that he was a rebel, that he received the justice he deserved. Immediately, immediately David understands that his plea for gentleness has failed. That his love was not enough. That his son is dead. And there is nothing now to hold David in tension any longer. His son is dead. And so he is flooded with emotion, and he leaves the gate, and he's no, no longer caught between worlds. And for a moment, it's like his whole world has just collapsed. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, 
my son, my son Absalom, would I have died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. And you weep with him. Three times David says the name of his son, and five times he weeps, my son. King is entirely now melted into father. And no one else speaks. And there is no comfort. And there is no rescue. There is only his barren grief. And all that could have been. And all that once was. And all the years that he squandered with Absalom. And there were years. All of it comes rushing on him. There were troubles, but there was once so much potential, and all of that now is buried beneath this heap of the rocks. One man's vanity, now another man's agony. Agony, all is agony. And knowing that this is somehow a cascading effect of his own evils, David cries out to God, Or to the wind, would that I have died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. And David's grief is further bloodied by his guilt. Justice demanded that David's son be cursed. And all the love stirring in his heart could not save his beloved son from the grave. And now must rush in glory. Because David had another son, a greater son, an eternal son. And in him there was no vanity, no pride. No, he was gentle and lowly. And he was a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief, committed no evil and no justice need be exacted upon him. No, instead, he was grieved by our rebellion. And he was grieved by our consequences. And seeing our plight, seeing that we were caught between heaven and earth, he looked at us and he longed to deal gently with us. And so what does this son of David do? He tangles himself in our mess. And he hangs in our place. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And as if by a great javelin of justice, he was pierced for our transgressions. And under a pile of our very many curses, he was crushed for our iniquity. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. In love and anguish, David wished yearned that he could die in place of his son. But little did David know 
that in love and in anguish, his son would die for him and for me and for you and all the mournful love in David's heart could not lift a single stone from that grave. But the wondrous love of the Almighty Father is enough. And the stone was rolled away. And from that grave rose the Son of God, the Son of David. In glorious light, justice paid, sin defeated, death slain, love overcoming. Going to the tree. Jesus, the Son of God, became a curse to remove our curse. And so now there is forgiveness for rebels. There is gentleness for those who deserve harm. There is life for those who were dying. And all things are being made new. All things are being made new. But it doesn't even stop there. Because now... He who had humbled himself so lowly, who sought no name for himself, who had not a shred of vanity, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee should bow, every tongue confessed that he is Lord of all creation to the glory of the Father. And all the promises of God find their yes today in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Come to him, O ye rebels. Come to him, O wretched in heart. He is gentle and lowly in heart. And he welcomes you. Father, (laughs) how good you are. Far, far beyond what we deserve. Infinitely beyond it. Your grace is overwhelming. You flood us with your love. We who were your enemies, your rebels, you've given to us everything, your own son. And so now, would our hearts beat for you, long for you, lay down our arms of rebellion and return to you, our king, our great king, It's in Jesus' name I pray it. Amen.